that said, if you'd open up your Bibles with me now to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And this morning we're going to be picking up in verse 18 with a message entitled, The Wrath of God Revealed. How's that for a welcome home message? It's just where we are in the scriptures. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, if you'd follow along with me as I read now from God's word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that it is alive. And we pray that you would speak to hearts today by your spirit, accomplish Lord, your purpose here, in Jesus' name, amen. Within his introduction, the Apostle Paul revealed the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a message that is so powerful and life-changing that if responded to, provides the power of God unto salvation and the righteousness of God to those who believe. There is no greater news in all the world than to know that God, who created the universe, so loved us that he sent his son to die for us, and that if we would believe in Jesus Christ, who paid the price for our sin on the cross by shedding his own blood and then rising again from the dead, that we can be saved from eternal hell and separation from God and given the assurance of eternal life and entrance into heaven where there's no more sickness, no more sadness, no more sin. The former things have all passed away. This is the beauty and the wonder and the glory of the gospel. Yet this morning, we turn the page as it were, in the book of Romans, to verse 18. And here, Paul reveals the other side of the double-edged sword of the Word of God, as he presents for us the most extensive analysis of the human dilemma that has ever been recorded. In verse 17, he said, the righteousness of God has been revealed. But in verse 18, he says, the wrath, of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The subject of the wrath of God is not something that we hear much about today. Come to our church as we take the next six-week series sermons on the wrath of God. Invite your friends. It'll be amazing. You don't hear people talking about that. Often, when the gospel is presented, we begin with man's needs. For example, we talk about man's emptiness. We talk about man's loneliness, 
his behaviors that need to be changed by a relationship with a living and loving God. And it's true. A relationship with God, it changes everything. You're a new creation in Christ. All things are passed away. All things have become new. The emptiness, the loneliness is replaced with fulfillment in relationship with God. We also, when presenting the gospel, will make the listener aware of the blessing and the promises that they will have access to if they respond to the gospel. And so we encourage them. We say, come to Christ and you can experience a peace that surpasses all of your understanding. Come to Christ and all of the promises of God will be yours. Yes and amen. And this is also true. He has given unto us exceedingly great and precious promises, the Bible says, that we can hold on to and we can live by. But there's something else that is important to understand and often is left out for fear of offending the listener, and that is this. It is through salvation in Christ alone that we escape the wrath of Almighty God that we deserve. And there's a problem at this point. And the problem is that most people, when thinking about the wrath of God, interpret it in human terms rather than biblical terms. And when we do that, wrath inevitably suggests something like impulsive anger or malice that we often see in human beings. But God's wrath is not the same thing as human anger. And if we fail to understand that, we're uneasy with the very idea of God's justice and God's wrath, and we think that somehow it's unworthy of God's character, and so we steer away from the issue completely. However, the scriptures do not steer away from the subject, but speak of it. What is the wrath of God? The word wrath used here and used 10 times in 16 chapters in this letter to the Romans is the word arge. It's God's feeling about sin. It's not this momentary, emotional, often uncontrolled anger to which human beings are prone. No, this is used primarily of God's holy and righteous wrath. Each time Paul uses this word, it doesn't mean that God is suddenly given over to some fleshly outburst of wrath, torching people with lightning bolts from the sky. Rather, it's God's long suffering of man's sin. And over time, the evil and wickedness of this world is built up and then will give way to the wrath of God, resulting in eternal condemnation to those who have rejected the means of salvation from wrath, which is the death of Jesus Christ. Listen carefully. Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross and died, all of the wrath that should have been poured out on us was poured out on him. The price was paid. However, if you reject the price that has been paid by the blood of Christ, then who will pay the price? You will. You'll experience his wrath. Jesus already took it so that you would never have to. He's appointed us unto salvation, not unto wrath. But if you reject the salvation that he's provided, then you experience that wrath that Jesus died to keep you from. The wrath of God. Presently, we're living in a time 
where God's grace is being extended to mankind, a time when the gospel can be received and the wrath of God has not yet been poured out. But the Bible makes it very clear that there is coming a day when the Spirit of God will not always strive with men and the church will be taken and what will follow is the wrath of God. In Revelation, it's called the wrath of the Lamb. It comes from the throne of Christ who will judge a Christ-rejecting world. The Bible warns us concerning this. There will come a day when that which has been held back will be unleashed. Many of us are familiar with John chapter 3, specifically John 3.16. But a few verses later, in that context, listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said, The Father loves the Son, has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Do you understand? Here the Lord says, if you believe in what my Son has done, if you trust him by faith, you will not experience the wrath of God. But if you reject that and you deny that, then the wrath of God abides in you. This is what is being stored up for you in that day when you die, when you leave this planet. Who will experience the wrath of God? Now that we know what it is, Paul tells us very clearly here. He says in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against, here who experiences it, the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is one day coming upon the sons of disobedience, Paul told the Ephesians. And those sons of disobedience are those who walk in ungodliness and unrighteousness. Ungodliness has to do with our relationship to God, while unrighteousness has to do with our relationship to man. The word ungodliness here is defined as a lack of reverence for God. No fear of God. It's the neglect of God. And ungodliness doesn't just have to be atheism. That is certainly ungodliness, the denial of the existence of God, but also ungodliness is acting as if God did not exist. It is a life that completely disregards God. It's the general attitude of so many today. Some may not deny the existence of a God per se, but at the same time, they don't take time to notice him or expect him to move in the affairs of men. Even though they know down deep within he exists, but they live like he doesn't. And what follows this ungodliness is a life of unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is the result of ungodliness. Someone said, for where there is irreverence toward God, the result will be injustice toward man. In the following verses, Paul tells us, he describes the actions of those who are living ungodly and in unrighteousness. And the first thing he points out here, folks, number one, they suppress the truth. It says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The word suppress means to hold down the truth. It's not passive. It's actually active. It's continual. It's aggressive, striving against truth. And it's not that the truth isn't there, that it isn't obvious. 
It's just that men don't want to acknowledge that truth. So rather than acknowledge the truth that has been revealed about God, submit to it and surrender to it, the alternative for fallen mankind is to suppress it, to overlook it, to ignore it. And by suppressing the obvious truth, somehow they assume falsely, I might add, in their folly that they will escape the wrath of God. In our society today, we have come up with all kinds of different ways and methods of suppressing the truth. Doing away with truth, holding it down. We've come up with theories, ideologies, legislations, ideas of our own making. We've even developed euphemisms for God, such as Mother Nature. There is no Mother Nature, friends. Karma, not real. Destiny, fate, we call it, all for the purpose of masking the truth and hindering and stifling and restraining the truth of who God is. Why? Why will a person suppress the truth? Here are a few reasons. One, the truth can be painful. The truth can hurt. Second, so often with the truth, there is a consequence. Also, the truth may demand a change of life. Yet rather than acknowledge that or accept it, instead, shove it down, bury it under anything you can find. However, this is the sad thing. The more that you suppress the truth, the further you move away from the freedom that the truth brings. Because the Bible says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you what? So if you suppress it, you think you're getting away, you're, you're getting freedom, but in reality, you're going deeper into depravity and into bondage. And all the while, the truth is presented, able to liberate you in Christ, whom the Son sets free, is free indeed. So the wrath of God will one day be revealed on the ungodly, on the unrighteous, for a suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. But here's what follows the suppression of the truth. They're without excuse. Because, verse 19, follow the flow of this chapter, because, why are they without excuse? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. God has shown it to them. Man is without excuse, first of all, for conscience sake. There is a moral law, which means there must be a moral law giver. What may be known of God is manifest in them. That which is knowable, the fact that God is the creator is knowable because God has manifested, he's made it evident to them in their own conscience. Most people, even in primitive, archaic cultures, realize that there is right and there is wrong. They just understand that innately. Why? Because God places it within them. We're created in the image of God and they know that it's wrong. You ask a person, do you think it's wrong for a child to be sold as a slave for someone's sexual pleasure? Do you think that's wrong? Do you think that's evil? Do you think that's wicked? And most people will say, yes, that is wrong. Why do you think that it's wrong? Because it is. Why? The fact that there is evil is evidence of the fact that there must be good. If there's good, then there has to be evil, or why would there be evil? It gives us evidence. If there is a moral law within us, there must be a moral law giver. And that moral law giver is God. Conscience reveals it. We're without excuse. It's within us. It's manifest to us. But not just conscience, folks. Also creation. Creation. It says, since the creation of the world, 
His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Not just conscience manifest within them, but also creation all around them. There is no way that man can plead ignorance of God because as you look at creation in any direction, it screams out, creator. Everywhere that you look, the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The firmament shows his handiwork. What a paradox this is. Did you see it? Invisible attributes clearly seen. How is that which is invisible seen if it's invisible through God's creation. He has manifested it. And in this world, you can see God's handiwork. Man, reasoning in his mind upon the basis of the law of cause and effect is forced to the conclusion that there must be an adequate cause behind every effect. The universe in all of its beauty and design reveals and points to a creator, a designer behind that design. You break the laws of agriculture, your harvest will fail. You break the laws of architecture, your building will crumble. You break the laws in your own, the health of your body will suffer. John said in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He's talking about Jesus there in the very beginning. The logos, the, the thinker behind the thought, the creator behind the creation. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15 says it this way. Speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the preeminent one over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. This tells us that he created everything, he sustains everything, and when it says all things consist, it means literally he holds everything together by the word of his power. If Jesus took his hands off of the universe, off of this planet for a second, folks, we would spin out into the cosmos and we would evaporate in the process. If the, the planet was just a little bit closer to the sun, we would fry just a touch uh, farther away and we would freeze. He is holding it together. Let that be an encouragement to you. If he can hold that together, he can hold your life together. But this is the thing. It's all him. And yet people will seek to deny. Looking at creation, zoology, botany, astronomy, all of it pointing to, to the amazing design of God, and they will deny his existence. And I'll tell you something else that is rather tragic, and it's this. Even in the church today, there are those who are now becoming advocates of what they call theistic evolution. That is, God started it, and then evolution happened after that. That's not what the Bible says. And I deny that. Absolutely, on the basis of Scripture, there is no theistic evolution. The Bible says in the beginning, God, he spoke it into existence. I believe what God's word says. And you know why people are, are beginning to move in that direction? I'll tell you why. Because they want to be recognized in the halls of academia. I would much rather be recognized in the halls of heaven. How sad. How pathetic to think that man, being the height 
of God's creation in the midst of this vast, impressive, imposing display of beauty and light and order could ever say that it just happened by chance. And it's because of this obvious evidence that is all around us, man is without excuse. In verse 21, it says, because, why are they? Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. What we are seeing here, folks, is there's this continual, there's a downward spiral of depravity that's being revealed here in this passage. First, you suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And you deny the existence of God, though it's all around you. Your own conscience, all of creation speaks of it. And yet, even though you know that there's a God, you don't glorify him and you're not thankful to him. And yet, man is without excuse. Man does not glorify God for the discoveries that he makes. Who does he glorify? Himself. He receives the awards. He receives the medals, the accolades, the plaques. Man takes the glory for himself because ultimately man desires to be God. That was the lie of the devil in the very beginning in the book of Genesis chapter 3. You can be like God and God knows it and man seeks to do that, to deify self, to deify man and not thankful to God who holds the very breath in his hands. Man will not glorify, he chooses not to bow his knee before God. Why? Because for one thing, to admit that there's a God would mean I am accountable for my actions. For the atheist, for the humanist, for the relativist, for the secularist, for the evolutionist, and any otherist out there. To admit that there's a God who created everything, who is in charge of everything, who sustains it all, you're then accountable for the life that you live. And if there is a God, I'm required to submit to him. But my flesh and my sinful nature that suppresses the truth and unrighteousness does not want to submit to the righteousness of God. And so I'll just say, there is no God. God doesn't exist. My higher power is different from yours. Whatever you desire yours to be, I'll just deny his existence. But I'm going to have to close my eyes. I'm going to have to shut my ears. I'm going to have to turn my brain off to deny that he is who he claimed to be. And what follows? The suppression of the truth in this ungodly, unrighteous life, the one who had the truth clearly revealed, clearly seen, but denies it, goes on living like God did not exist. You know what follows that? Paul tells us here, futility in your thoughts. To be futile in your thoughts means vain, devoid of force, that which is without result or success. This is God's estimation of man's thinking process apart from him. It's futile. It refers to that which does not measure up to what it should be. You remember Solomon, David's son, wealthiest man that ever lived, had power, had pleasure, had wisdom, had all of these things at his fingertips. You read the book of Ecclesiastes and he gives you a little bit of backstory on everything that he pursued. And do you know what it says as he pursued all of these things as far as he could go? He said it was all empty. It was all vain. It didn't profit me anything. Pleasure, it wasn't enough. Wisdom, I got a headache. All the money I amassed, I had to leave it to this knuckleheaded kid. I mean, this is all, all of this. He struggled with it, said, this is a waste. This is vanity. It's nothing. At the end, he says, fear God. That's what you ought to do. 
But he became futile in his thinking. And you see people with futile kinds of thought just living for that only which is temporary, that which doesn't last. You can climb the ladder of success. You can have more degrees than, than your wall can hold. You can have as many, be with as many people as you want, be as promiscuous as you desire to be. But in the final analysis of your entire life, worthless. That's what the Bible says. Futile in thinking. And that futility in thinking, listen, you know where it leads next? To foolishness in a darkened heart. In the very seat of your person, who you are. We're not talking about the organ in your body that pumps blood. We're talking about your moral compass, who you are being darkened. Without God in your heart, without the word of God washing your heart, the seed of who you are, the, the feeling of moral choice becomes dark, darkness. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the life activates, and a heart that is destitute of spiritual understanding is in the condition of darkness that affects every part of you. You either walk in darkness or you walk in the light as he is in the light. In addition to a foolishness in the heart, a futility in your thoughts, you then become filled with, re, with this arrogance and pride. In, and it manifests itself, it says here, professing to be wise. It says you're a fool. Professing to be wise. You have a piece of paper that says you're wise. Yet if you do not acknowledge God, no fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, then in God's analysis, according to his word, you're actually a fool. Regardless of the false assumption about yourself or what people say of you, the word profess means to pretend, allege that you are filled with wisdom, but in reality, if you don't acknowledge God and you suppress his truth, you're a fool. God's words, not mine. Interesting, the word fool that is used here in Scripture, in the Greek language, we get our English word, moron. <laughs> it's true. Consider those today in our world who profess to have such great wisdom in the universities, even liberal seminaries, liberal theologians, an oxymoron to be sure, saying there is no God, the Scriptures aren't the Word of God, only some of it is inspired, presenting theories like evolution. All of these things are nonsense and an insult to the living God, and it all stems from a suppression of the truth of God and a flat-out denial of the obvious. It is willful blindness and a darkness that they live in. Futile in your thoughts, foolish in your heart, false in your assumption. It says here in verse 23 that they then fabricate a form of worship. This is where it leads. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Birds, four-footed animals, creeping things. The word changed here means to cause one thing to cease and another thing to take its place, the human race exchanged the glory of God for idols, idols made in their own 
image. Man seeking to create a God in his own image. Here we are created in the image of God, but man seeks to create his own God in his own image. This is the God that I will serve, the idol that I will worship. Man goes from being aware and having knowledge of the living God, descends downward and begins to worship man. Do we or do we not live in a society that deifies and glorifies and worships men? We want followers. We want people to glorify us. We want people to see us rather than see God. And so man begins to worship himself. And when man refuses to receive God's revelation of himself, he becomes futile in his thoughts, foolish in his heart, fabricates his own form of worship. But there will come a point when God will give man over to those things that he pursues. He'll let off the restraints. God will never force his way into your life. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone will open the door, I will come in. I want a relationship with you, but he'll never force it. For love to be love, there has to be a decision made. He's demonstrated his love. He's communicated his love. But you can reject it. You can suppress the truth of it. You can run from it but you will be futile in your thoughts. Your foolish heart will be darkened. You'll formulate your own false assumption in worship. But where that leads, look at verse 24. Therefore, which means in light of everything that Paul has just said, this is the connecting thought. Therefore, God also, notice this, gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their flesh. That's a powerful statement there, folks. God gave them up? Gave up? We tell people, don't you ever give up. Don't you quit. It's always too soon to quit. Never give up. Here it says, at some point, God gave them up. Gave them up to what? It says, the uncleanness, the lusts of their hearts. They dishonor their bodies among themselves. It means to give into the hands of another. Why did God give them over? Because man denied his existence. Chose the path for himself. He gives them over to uncleanness, which is impurity or moral defilement. You see any of that today? God gives them up to the lust of their heart, leaves them to act out or manifest their depraved affections or inclinations. You see any of that happening? It's happening. He gives them over to their lust that manifests itself in dishonoring their bodies, which were meant to be a temple of the living God. And yet they defile the temple and God gives them over to the lust that they pursue. And today we're seeing the repercussions of God giving man over to a mind which can sink into the filthiness of his own heart. And just when you think you saw the worst thing you've ever seen or the, the most wicked thing that's ever been imaginable, just wait around for a few minutes and something else comes out that'll blow your mind. It leads to idolatry. Verse 24, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. Amen. When God gave them over to their own desires, the first thing that manifested itself was idolatry. In verse 18, we read they suppressed the truth. But did you see what it says here in verse 24? Now they exchange the truth. First you suppress it. I don't believe it. I know that it's there, but I'm just not gonna, I'm just gonna deny it. But then what follows as you become futile in your thoughts and your heart becomes darkened, then you actually exchange 
the truth that you've suppressed and you embrace the lie. You buy the lie that the devil presents. You hold the truth down, but then you realize you can't run from it, so you digress further and you exchange the truth in return and you get a lie. When you suppress the truth, when you exchange the truth, listen, you open yourself up to anything, all kinds of things. And this world is full of lies. Why? Because there is a father of lies. His name is Satan. And he's causing people to embrace the lie. He did it in the very beginning. He lied. He denied God's word. And our parents believed it. And we see people following in that same category even today. What kind of lies? How about religious lies like this? All roads lead to God. That's a lie. Just do whatever you want. I mean, just be a good person. Just be nice to people. Be, be good. Do your best. And the big man upstairs will welcome you in. There is nothing in the Bible that says that. That is a lie. Straight from the pit of hell itself, the devil. That's just one of them. If you're a sincere person, you can make it to heaven. You'd be sin sincerely wrong. You can't get to heaven by being sincere. You can't get to heaven by being religious, by being spiritual, by being, quote, good in your own estimation of what goodness is. The Bible says there's none good. No, not one. We're all sinners, period. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's why Jesus came and died in our place. Religious lies that people buy into. It just isn't true. Then you have immoral lies that people embrace. Hey, if it feels good, great. Do it. I'm pretty sure the Bible says something about God is love. And I think also it says in here, don't judge me. So you just, you camp on those two verses and you live after your own lusts. And you pursue those things and you go after it. It's a lie. Hey, we love each other. So God's approving of it. Actually, he isn't. But you believe the lie. And how many people today are believing the lie? Not only immoral lies and religious lies, but how about lies on success? What really makes you successful? You know, years ago now, I think they removed these, but I don't see them very much anymore. But I remember growing up and seeing these stickers on cars, and there was a sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen because they still die. And if you don't know Christ, you lost. These are the things that people buy into. Stickers that say things like, no bad days. Really? Where do you live? Like, <laughs> on planet Earth? The only person that you could ever, where you could actually, you know, sport that sticker is in heaven. There's no bad days in heaven. Until then, you're going to have some, for sure. We live in a fallen world, but these are the lies that people believe. Be successful. Go after this. Pursue all of these things. You'll find fulfillment, and then you come up empty. All of the fallacies, all of the lies concocted by the father of lies himself to take men down the pathway that leads to eternal damnation. And when men embrace the lie, they deny the truth. The truth becomes relative. The truth becomes whatever I feel the truth is. And it all boils down to my own idolatry. This is what I have made. And this is what I accept. Give me a little bit of Hinduism. I'll take a little bit of Buddhism. Sprinkle a little Jesus on it. Boom, look what I got. You have nothing. Nothing but a lie. When God gave them over, it didn't stop with idolatry. It never does. They continue to travel further down away from the truth, and it leads into gross sexual immorality. Look at the next verse, 26. For this reason, here it is a second time, God gave them up to vile passions, such as their women, they exchanged the natural use 
for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error which was due. A second time, Paul says they were given up. They suppress the truth. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And now they are given over, given up to pursue vile passions such as, such as homosexuality and lesbianism. Paul implies this is actually a choice that they make. Not they were born this way, but this is a choice that they make. They have embraced the lie. And this right here is a lie that is presented throughout our culture, seeking to be pressed upon young children, to re, uh, you know, kind of establish their mind and their thinking, brainwash them, if I may, fly the flag over their public school, making them believe this. They don't know what gender they are. Just, just make them as a non-whatever, just non-binary. They'll figure it out as they get older. No, when they come out, they know what they are. It's how God created them. But this is the lie that's being placed upon us at this moment. And we find people, as it says here, burning in their lust. It means actually to burn out. And the terms that Paul uses here in the language are, are filled with intensity, terrible intensity. When men think that they're going to find fulfillment in a sexual experience, God says, in reality, it's not going to work. God removes the restraints. They go after it. They pursue it. And they find themselves as empty as before, indulging in these things that don't satisfy, that leave them empty and hopeless Man can only find fulfillment in a relationship with God. But let me tell you something, folks. Listen carefully. The homosexual person needs Jesus just as much as the heterosexual person needs Jesus. Amen? And we need to love these people. They need Christ. They are lost. They're given over to their vile passions. But I'll tell you this. Sometimes people want to classify this particular sin and say, listen, you're a homosexual, so hey, listen, you know, you, but they, they put it in a particular category. But what about the heterosexual who's living in fornication? Listen, the same thing applies. The Bible says no fornicator, no homosexual is going to inherit the kingdom of God. So whether you're a homosexual doing what is unnatural or a lesbian doing what is unnatural or you're a heterosexual that is living in a sexual relationship outside of your marriage, both are going to experience what the Bible says is the wrath of God at some point. They're going to receive the penalty within And this is something we don't understand. And it's important for us to realize. And here in our culture today, we're seeing the lie being pressed upon us through legislation. People saying that a man can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman. That's not what the Bible says. This is one of the things that God ordained even before the fall. Marriage was to be between a man and a woman, period. That has always been God's design. Regardless of what California says or any other court of law says, it doesn't stand up to what the court of heaven says. And God says it's a sin and needs to be repented of. That's what the Bible teaches. And we applaud it because we agree with it. But listen, the world looks at you and looks at me and says, you're a hater. Really? I don't want you to experience the wrath of God. Such were some of us. Such were some of us. We lived these kinds of lifestyles. We were lost. We were away from the Lord. And God brought us in. Guys, listen, we need to understand this. This is what the Bible says. But you can see the depravity where it leads when you suppress the truth. That's what's happening in culture. Suppressing the truth, exchanging the truth for a lie, This is the byproduct. The Bible reveals it right here. 
And many are telling us today that this is acceptable. We ought to embrace it. Sadly, even in churches, folks. I'm a homosexual, they say, but I'm also a Christian. Friend, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. You need to be saved. And so here, the Bible calls it sin, affirms that point. It's not a sickness. It's not born with it. It's not natural. It says here in Scripture, it wasn't what God intended from the very beginning. In fact, the Lord says it's shameful and it's also painful. How devastating to see millions of people affected by viruses and things that were brought on by stepping outside of God's plan and God's purpose. And why? Verse 28, continue, follow. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them, a third time, now it says he gave them over, gave them up, gave them up, gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Verse 18, they suppress the truth. Verse 25, they exchange the truth. Verse 28, they don't like to retain God in their knowledge. What then is the result? God gave them up to uncleanness. God gave them up to vile passions and God gave them over to a debased mind. There's hardly any passage that so clearly shows what happens to a man or a woman who leaves God out of his thinking. And it isn't so much that God sends judgment upon man, but man brings judgment upon himself. Someone said when a man banishes God from his life and his consciousness, when he becomes a certain kind of man, he's given a debased mind. What does that mean? To have a debased mind means a reprobate mind. It means a mind that God does not approve of. It is a mind which cannot discharge the functions. A mind that rejects God is confused, lost. And it's at this point that man has reached his ultimate low in total perversity and depravity. It is when society, listen, begins to call evil good and good evil that is the fruit of a debased mind. Man becomes filled with these things. And there is a list here, and you can look at it, 21 sins that follow, and they're all listed here. Verse 29, it says here, follow this rather quickly. It says, filled with unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetous, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, Whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, they know it, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but they approve of those who practice them. Here's the worst part about this. In the midst of the idolatry, the gross sexual immorality, the complete perversity brought about by man's denial of God, and at the same time, knowing the judgment of God continue, they practice the things, and then they approve of those who practice them. In other words, the fact that the law of God is stamped upon their conscience, means man can't sin without knowing he's wrong, but even having the knowledge doesn't stop him from practicing it. 
and loving his lust. So the result is man not only continues to commit sin, but at the same time, he applauds those who do the same things as he does. Why? Maybe feeling justified because everyone else is doing it. They delight in observing others in the same state of condemnation as themselves. So what did they do? They invade the fields of education. They dominate the media. They seek legal status for their wickedness. They defy all attempts of control, seek to desensitize the world and the church and demand that we believe what they believe and applaud it. That's, that's where we live. Paul is describing our culture right now, our world. All the sins listed here. Paul lists this marks of civilization. Really, that's nearing collapse. The growing defiance of God can only mean one thing. Rome, if you look at Rome, it lies in ruins. Disaster, degeneracy, it went hand in hand. In light of this obvious parallel of Paul's day to our own, there is hope. There is a light shining in darkness. Jesus Christ has come into this world covered in darkness and filth and sin, immersed in total unrighteousness and offers life eternal. He comes to set the captives free, to liberate the prisoners, to bring sight to the blind, to bring healing to the broken heart, to bring people out of the bondage of sin, to renew their mind that has been futile. That's what the Spirit of God will do. Jesus has come. Folks, listen, don't be hopeless. We have a living hope in Christ. And someone said that when it's the darkest, that's when light shines the brightest. And things may be getting dark. And they are. But we're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We reflect his light to this world and we seek to reach people with the everlasting gospel. And I look at this list and you look at this list and you think, you know what? Some of us, we fit uh, many of those categories. Paul said, such were some of you, but you were washed. He saved us. He wants to save them. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, for your revelation of what is to come, that we're not left without instruction. Lord, we see the world that we live in. It's no surprise to you. Lord, we know that you want to save people, Lord. You saved us. But Lord, there may be some here today who have never received Jesus Christ. They've been living in futility of mind, pursuing the lust of the flesh, embracing the lie. And today the truth can set them free. Spirit of God, search hearts today. Bring conviction in accordance with the promise of your word. If you're here today and eyes are closed and heads are bowed and you've never received Jesus Christ as your savior, please, this is an opportunity for you to receive the love of God.
to be washed, to be cleansed, to be brought out of bondage, to have the truth set you free. Maybe you've suppressed it. Maybe you've known it, but you've been fighting it. And you think you're fighting this person or fighting that person. Your fight is not with man, it's with God. And you can never win that battle, but you can surrender and have life everlasting. If that's you today, would you raise your hand up high? I wanna pray for you this morning. If you're here in the sanctuary, there in the fellowship hall, you're out in the courtyard, I just want you to put your hand up and then put it down. Anybody at all here this morning in this room, if you don't know that you're born again, friend, you don't wanna live another day without Jesus because you might not have another day. Life is a vapor. It's brief. Do you know the truth? Are you walking in light today? Or are you walking in darkness? You know the answer to that question. If you look at the scriptures we just read, it's very clear. Do you need Jesus today? Raise your hand up high. I wanna pray for you today. And by raising your hand, you're saying, Lord, I wanna be born again. I want salvation right now. This is your chance. You may never have another opportunity like today. And you'll never be able to say, I did not know. Because you know. Anybody at all, raise your hand up high. This is your moment. This is your chance. God loves you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for salvation that comes through Christ alone. By grace, we've been saved. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you stand with us this morning? May the Lord bless you this week and strengthen you. I want to encourage you. Folks, listen. Home fellowships, midweek Bible study, opportunities to serve, to be connected to the body of Christ. I encourage you, take advantage of that. Don't just attend. Be connected. Man, midweek, we're, we're looking at the life of David. It's powerful. Man, to see what this guy went through and what he endured and what God made him into. So much application midweek. You say, well, I like to watch it at home. Listen, I'm thankful for online services. If you're watching online today, thank you. We're <laughs> glad you're here. But listen, it's not like being here. Being here is like being here. I know that was deep. And there is such a difference because I've watched church uh, when I was away from church, which is rare, but I've watched it, and it's not the same thing. It's not like being here and being connected to the body of Christ. You log in, you get a little message, but it's sometimes grand you get sick or you can't make it, but listen, you'd be surprised how many people are on that list every week. You know, there's like 200 people on, a, you know, maybe on average service who watch this online, and a lot of them, they're, they're in cities like that are here. <laughs> I always wonder like, I want to trace those. Like, whose houses are these? <laughs> We're working on it right now. Our IT guys are. It's a new ministry. We're going to come knock on your door and say, yo, where are you? Come to church. We'll give you a ride. No, we're not doing that. That's a joke. 
Love you guys. If you need prayer today after the service, please don't hesitate to come forward. We got pastors up front, leaders. would love to pray with you for any needs that you might have. If not, God give you an awesome week in the Lord. We look forward to seeing what God's going to do in the days ahead. God bless y'all.